The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, when you speak, your words have the power to change. As you declare to us here in this passage this morning that you will make all things new, we believe it to be true. We ask, Father, that you would be kind to us so that we might participate in that new creation. We do not want you to be glorified in the punishment of anyone here, Father, for our continued living in idolatry and sexual immorality. I ask, Lord, that You would, by Your Spirit, do only what You can do this morning. And that is to increase our love for You to such a degree that we will stay on that narrow path that leads to everlasting life. Father, magnify Yourself this morning through this text. Make Your love for Your people known. Reveal the great sacrifice of Christ that He might redeem sinners like us. And through all this, Father, I pray for Christ Community Church that You would make us as a people holy as You are holy. Not only to bless our lives, Father, our marriages and our children, but that You might be the most glorified, the most magnified here in this place, in this time, through this people. For anyone here, Father, who doubts the coming of Christ in your kingdom, for anyone here who does not think about it and meditate on it daily, I pray you would change that. Give us the faith to believe and give us the wisdom to meditate day after day on the great hope that you have set before us. And in that hope, Father, I pray that we would be a people that live set apart for your glory. These are big requests, Father, but you are a big God, and you hear our prayers, and it's nothing for you to answer them. So please do that for us. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we had a chance last week, if you were here with us in Revelation 21, Revelation 21 is a transition. We start in Revelation 1, moving all the way up through 20, and we're dealing with the coming of Christ and the judgment that is to come. And at the end of chapter 20, we saw God make his final destruction of Satan and sin and death, and everything that was in rebellion against God was cast into the lake of fire and locked away, and we all said, Amen. And we picked up in Revelation 21 last week, and if you were here with us, John gets this incredible vision. He gets a vision of this new heaven and this new earth and this new city. It's a a home, it's a place for God's people where we can dwell with God in peace and in harmony and love forever and ever. It's a most extraordinary picture that was painted for us. And that was in verses 1 through 4 in Revelation 21, and then Verse 5 through 8 is a major shift. It doesn't probably appear so as you're reading through it, but verses 5 through 8, it's a divine monologue where we know definitively, it's, the only sec- it's only the second time in the entire book we know definitively this is God speaking. It's not just a voice or a messenger from the throne. It's God himself that is speaking from the throne. And it is this climactic statement where God, in essence, is summarizing the entire book in four verses, he's saying, listen, I, I, I'm reigning on my throne. I am making all things new. He's saying, listen, I, I, I'm going to punish the wicked. All those who do not put their faith in Christ, I will put in the lake of fire. And all those who do put their faith in Christ, he says, I'm going to create a place for them where we will t- dwell together forever and ever. It is God's declarative statement of his happily ever after of the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. 
what I want us to ask ourselves today, and I, I do believe the passage presses us to ask ourselves this today, is what will your role be in the kingdom to come? What will it be? Everybody will have a part to play. Every human being will have a part to play in the kingdom that comes. And if this is how God's redemptive story ends, if this is it, and he declares it to be so, blessing and eternal life for those in Christ, judgment and eternal death for those who reject Christ, we must ask ourselves, if we're going to be sober this morning and not just do church, will I be blessed or will I be cursed? When I come into the presence of my Lord, will I hear him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, enter my Father's rest? Or will we hear him say, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. It will be one or the other. The answer to that question, I think, can actually be found in the passage, in what God declares specifically, how you respond to what God is declaring here, that he's going to make all things new. I want to look at the end of God's story. He says, it is done. That is the title of the sermon. It is done. I'm making all things new. And as we do, I want you to ask yourself, do you believe it? Have you received it? And are you holding on to it? Because those three responses, if they're all the affirmative, you say, I believe it with all my heart. I've received it by grace and not by works, and I'm going to hold on to it by God's grace until I see Jesus face to face. Then you can praise God this morning, and that should cultivate a hallelujah in the depth of your heart. But if any one of these you are suspect on or you do not have, then today you must repent and you must seek forgiveness immediately and you must turn from your sin, and you must turn to Christ, and you must ask Him to save you. Do we know where we're going? Are we clear though so far? Okay. Three essential responses. They're essential responses to the promise of eternal life. Believing God's promise of eternal life, receiving God's promise of eternal life, and keeping, holding on to God's promise of eternal life. All three are necessary if eternal life is going to be yours. Number one. Well, let me give you the theme. I gotta do that, right? I gotta be a good preacher here and give you the theme. Your response to the end of the story determines the end of your story. Okay? Your response to the end of God's story determines the end of your story. Point number one. Believing God's promise of eternal life. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne, we saw that last week, that's Christ and the Father, or both, likely, both, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, we know that last week the old things had passed away. They were no longer in existence. All the sin, all the suffering, all the disease and death, all the evil in this world are now gone. And God here, in light of that truth, speaks, he declares, he decrees from his throne, I am making all things new. And he says, behold. And I, oftentimes we don't touch on words like this, but it, it means look, see what I'm doing. See what the one who is reigning upon the throne is doing in making all things new. He wants us to Affirm what John testified to last week. New heavens, new earth, new city, new people dwelling together with God forever and ever. He's saying, look at this paradise that I am creating for you, my people. And this place where we will enjoy each other and one another for all eternity. This newness that belonged to the people of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. A new creation. The old have passed away. Behold, the new has come, including you, my beloved. If you are in Christ, you have been made new and will participate in the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, John's, this over-the-top vision that we saw last week, now God is saying audibly, he's affirming it. 
God, John saw it and God is now saying this is true. This is called a, a performative statement. And a performative statement is not like human words that we simply utter but cannot change. A performative statement is where the words not only describe what we're going to see, but have the power to make it happen. And God can do this. Like Unlike simple human speech, our words generally do not have the power to transform, but God's words always do. What God says comes to pass. What God decrees comes to be. In Genesis chapter 1, you remember, God spoke. God spoke, and in six days, my beloved, and I believe that to be literally 24 hours, six days, God spoke, and all that is seen and unseen came into being. Everything that we know and all that we do not know came into being. Well, here at the end, God is going to speak again. And in speaking, he's going to make all that he made, all the goodness that he made, he's going to make it new. He's going to utterly transform the heavens and the earth and his people and the place that he will dwell with us. He will make new. My beloved, this is a truth so glorious and so important for the faith of every believer. God says to John, look at the latter part of verse 5. He says to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So he affirms the trustworthiness, the truthfulness of these words, and he tells John, write it down that I'm going to make all things new. He doesn't doesn't tell John because he thinks John's going to forget. I'm sure that John has a laser focus right now. And he doesn't tell John because he thinks that the, the churches in Asia Minor and throughout the centuries are going to hear it and think that God is lying. It's not like he's saying, these are true, but my other words were not true. All of God's words are always true. Amen? Amen. Always true. He reminds John to write it down, listen with all your might. Because if you doubt this coming kingdom, or if you do not focus daily, and I would say daily, on the new heaven and the new earth that's being made and is coming for you, then you will live as an old world person. You will live as a citizen of Babylon. You will listen and follow the beast. You'll be deceived by the false prophet. You will participate in the way the world lives. If that hope that is set before you, you do not believe or you do not see clearly. You see, my friends, when we, whatever we functionally believe to be our future or what we hope our future to be, that gives shape to the immediate present. It gives shape to you this day. Right? I mean, most people who want to go to college, they go to college and they spend four years and lots of money and usually get a terrible education with the hope of what? Of getting the degree to get the job to have a better life. So they go to college now because they have this hope of a better future. I would say most people enter marriage because they think that getting married, married will be better for them and more glorifying to God than staying single that their future would be better for them and better for their spouse and more glorifying to God than remaining single. I certainly know, and I will testify to this, that we exercise and we strive to eat well because we believe in so doing that our bodies will be prepared for the future to live longer, to live happier, hopefully as a Christian, to serve Christ longer. I mean, who in their right mind would want to go to the gym every day and work out Or worse yet, eat vegetables on a regular basis. We do this because the future that's set before us impacts our day-to-day lives. Every day we do simple things. We brush our teeth, we wash our clothes, we change the oil in our car because we believe in the future. We need our teeth, we need our clothes, and we need our cars. So this is a simple concept. The same truth applies to your view of eternal life. The same impact on a day-to-day basis will be contingent upon your view of eternal life. If you doubt the future promise of God, or if the hope of a new heaven and a new earth and you participating in it is so small or so insignificant on a day-to-day basis, then you will go through your life without that hope that is set before you. And you will not experience the transformative power that that hope has when you do. The Apostle Peter, as you just heard read, he made this great connection between fixing your hope 
I love it. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on that new heaven and that new earth and your place in it in Christ. And then do what? Live a holy life. If that hope is set before you, it'll be transformed into power now for you to live a holy life. Peter said, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's that glorious day. And then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Without the future hope before you, without thinking about it and meditating on on a daily basis, You will live as the world lives. You will go back to the passions and be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I mean, after all, my beloved, what compelling reason do you have to live a holy life to serve and sacrifice to Christ right now if that hope is not real? Why would you suffer like that as a Christian in this fallen world and in this fallen place? You have no good reason if that hope is not real. What compels you to mortify sin What compels you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? What compels you to bring the gospel to the lost and make disciples of all nations if this hope is not real? Paul got this, did he not? Paul understood. He made the connection in 1 Corinthians 15 between the hope of the resurrection and being with God in the new heaven and the new earth and how we live now. Paul said, if the dead are not raised, if the future hope is not real, he said, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's a very sobering statement because that's how the world lives. But a world without the hope of Christ and the hope of the kingdom to come should live like this. If you don't believe there's a glorious future in the new creation being prepared for you right now, then why not live as the world lives? Why not live for today without thinking about tomorrow? Why not take? Why not consume? Why not eat and drink and indulge without any regard for the future? But if you do believe in this new heaven and this new earth, and if you do believe that it's coming soon and you'll be part of it because Christ has redeemed you, if that is part of your daily meditation, my beloved, then you will. You will strive to be holy. You'll strive to put sin to death. You will strive to love and serve your brothers and sisters in this church. You will strive to share the gospel with all those in your mission field. You will do that because that hope is set before you And it is so good and so glorious. You not only want others to be part of it too, but you'll say, you know what? I will sacrifice now. I will serve now. I will suffer now if that's my end. Right? I mean, this is, as Kenny just prayed, this is a moment. This is a blink. Like the grass of the field, you're here today and gone tomorrow. Holiness is what you will do. And I would go one step further, my beloved. If if, if this future... If you believe it, and it permeates your daily meditation, and if it doesn't, then I hope after today it does. I hope you say, you know what, I'm going to strive each day to meditate on my future home. You know what's going to happen? You're actually going to begin to serve and sacrifice in very strange, uncommon ways. You're going to really pursue Christ, and you're going to put yourself out on that edge. You'll believe Jesus when he said, to the disciples, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit what? Eternal life. You'll believe it and therefore you will sacrifice. So first, I pray you see the necessity of believing. Not just believing, going, yeah, I know, but really believing, really knowing that that is your hope in Christ and meditating on it regularly so that that hope comes into your present. And just like you brush your teeth and wash your clothes and change the oil in your car, you will live differently today because of the hope of Christ in the future. Point number one, you got it? Point number two, we must receive this promise of eternal life. Believing is not enough. Just believing that it's there and believing you're going to participate in it does not mean that you actually will. You must receive God's promise of eternal life. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, so God said to John, and he said to me, it is done. It's such a 
it's such a profound eternal statement. God is saying that the story's over. The, the story of human history, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, it's over. This is the grand finale. And so he says definitively, remember, this is God now speaking from the throne, and he says to John in all creation, it is done. No more work to be done. No more redemption. No more judgment. It is done. Everything, every single thing that God purposed from Genesis chapter 1, from the first words of the Bible until that last day, God is saying, it is done. I have accomplished it. The new creation has come. Heaven's come down to earth. Christ is reigning upon his throne. And you, if you're in Jesus, if you're part of the church, you are dwelling with God the Father and God the Son, indwelt by the Spirit on this glorious, renewed earth. It is a picture of perfect paradise that God says, I have made new for you and for his glory. So John sees this glorious end and and then God reminds him how he can know that this end is not just a hope or a dream or a wish, but it's absolutely guaranteed. Look at, look at the middle of verse 6. God says, it is done, and then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He said, why, why, why does he say it is done? Then he starts throwing Greek letters at us. Because we don't get Greek. So why the Alpha, why the Omega? The Alpha, you know, is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter, and therefore all letters in between belong to the alphabet. And the metaphor, I don't think, is too difficult for us to understand. God uses this, 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 this title, Alpha and Omega. We've seen it twice, actually, already in Revelation pertaining to God. We're going to see it again in Revelation 22 pertaining to Jesus Christ. It's a great, actually, argument for Christ's divinity. We'll get there in a couple weeks. It's a metaphor that reveals when, when God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it reveals his absolute power and his absolute sovereignty over all of human history. Now, if that's not a word of encouragement to you today, when just a glance at the headlines of the news caused you to go, wow, the world is out of control. Somebody is not steering this ship. It's not true. Human history is not random. It's not out of control. The story of human history, listen, it's God's story. He's the author. He purposed it. He decreed it. Every single thing that takes place is according to his purposed will, including this promise of a new heaven and a new earth and a new place for us to dwell with him. This promise is 100% guaranteed. Now, I know you hear that a lot in advertisements. You do. This is 100% guaranteed because the one who's saying it is saying it from the throne, and he, oh, by the way, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, if he decrees it. It comes to pass, and nothing, my friends, nothing will alter this course. This end will come. God said to the prophet Isaiah, listen, he said to the prophet Isaiah, I am God, and there is no other. He said, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Listen to this. God says, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Don't you love how clear that is? Now, living in a sinful world, I know we make promises we do not keep, and people make promises to us that we do not keep. Promise-making and promise-breaking, that's part and parcel with living in this fallen place. But God's promises are not like man's promises. God is faithful. God, as you know, cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer is what? No, no, a thousand times no. What God decrees, what God promises, God does. He will keep his promise. This new heaven and this new earth that he promised for his people will come to be in that future age. And that means, my beloved, listen, it means that it should not only shape the way we live now, that future hope, but if we want to participate in that, if we we don't just want to read about it or hear about it, but we want to actually live in it, then we must receive it from God. It is a gift given by God to sinful man. Look at the latter part of verse six. God continues speaking. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
And so you say, well, so this is good to thirst. The thirsty are going to get the spring of water, this water of eternal life. Now, if, if you were here with us years ago, we actually worked through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said something very similar. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he said, Blessed are those who what? Who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who what? Who realize they have no righteousness of their own. Happy are those, blessed are those who see clearly that in and of themselves, in and of their own sin, they are desolate, they are thirsty, they are unfit for the kingdom of God. They have no access to God because of their unrighteousness, unable to live a life that is pleasing to God, and certainly, my beloved, unable to get to heaven. Blessed are the thirsty because they will turn to Christ instead. Jesus says you're blessed if you realize you're thirsty because First of all, you'll stop lying to yourself. You'll stop lying to yourself, thinking you're good enough for God, thinking you're good enough to make it into heaven by your own merit. You'll stop that lie altogether. I was sharing the gospel a few weeks ago with a man, and this man had had a really hard life. He had been in and out of jail. He had uh, used substance abuse, lots of drugs, lots of alcohol. And I was explaining to him the holiness of God and the depth of our sin and the need for a Savior. You know what he said to me? This is a a man who struggled with the law, criminality, drugs, and alcohol. And he said to me, yeah, but it's not like I've murdered anyone. He said, I haven't been that bad, certainly not deserving of hell, and certainly not deserving of being kept out of heaven. And so I had to circle back again to the holiness of God. This man was not thirsting for the righteousness that he needed to enter heaven. And yet his life is one that you would look at and think, wow, there's no way apart from Christ. But even more importantly, Jesus says that the thirsty are blessed because they'll stop trying to earn their own righteousness. You're blessed if you're thirsty because you'll stop lying to yourself and you're blessed if you're thirsty because you will stop trying to earn your own righteousness. Now you say, now why are you telling us this? We're a reformed Baptist church. We believe we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone that our works can do no good to save us. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because John realized and God realized, or he wouldn't have declared it from the throne, that we forget this more often than not. The thirsty will stop trying, listen, the thirsty will stop trying to be the perfect husband. The thirsty will stop trying to be the sinless mother. The the thirsty will stop trying to be the perfectly obedient son or daughter that pleases their parent in everything they do. The thirsty will stop trying to find their identity at work or at school. The thirsty will stop hearing their friends and family speak into their lives and, and that be their primary identity. The thirsty will realize that all these things have no power to enter into the presence of a thrice holy God. The thirsty will run to Jesus and receive his righteousness that he gives freely through the cross. The thirsty run to Christ because they realize they have no righteousness of their own. They are unfit, holy, to come into the presence of a holy God. You remember the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well? It's one of the more famous dialogues. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Listen to Jesus' answer. He says to her, If you knew the gift of God, and the gift of God is eternal life, it's the spring of living water, It's the new creation. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He'd have given you eternal life. And then Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Her response should be your response. I want that water. I want to drink something where I'm never thirsty again. I want to drink something where I'm perfectly satisfied regardless of my circumstances in life. I want that water. 
Jesus said, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so just as God was so gracious with the Israelites in the desert, they were in the desert. When you're in the desert, you're thirsty, providing food and drink. For 40 years, Jesus is saying here, listen with all your might, Jesus is saying, I am the source of that water. It's Christ. It's the person. It's the relationship to Jesus. He is the only one that has the power to quench the thirst of mankind. He's the only one that can take away that eternal parchment in the depth of your soul. He gives it freely to all who come to him. He gives it freely to all who seek him, to know him. Not to just receive the gifts, but to know Christ, to enjoy Christ, to be companions with Christ. You know, one of the early good desires that God gave mankind was companionship. Very, very early. In Genesis chapter 2, if you remember that God looked upon Adam before he made Eve and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he made Eve, and, and therefore Adam and Eve provided, in the context of marriage, they provided that, that companionship. It was a desire that God gave that God satisfies through biblical marriage. And, and, and someone who is not gifted with the gift of celibacy, and many are not, they're truly not satisfied until they are married, until they have a husband or wife to be companions with. God gave that desire, and that desire is satisfied through marriage. But at an even deeper level than marriage, God gave man the desire to be in a relationship with him first. The ultimate desire is God and man being together to find the deepest joy, the deepest satisfaction in an intimate, loving relationship with your Creator through Jesus Christ. That's really what you desire most, even though many of us don't know it. We chase after all these other things trying to satisfy a desire, trying to quench the thirst when God is standing there saying, it's me. It's God. And we know that when sin entered, man was separated from God. And if we're separated from God, we're separated from what? The source of living water. We're separated from the righteousness that we need to be in communion with God. And that leaves us thirsty. And you know what I mean by that, right? That Christ meant that deep longing, that that deep internal dissatisfaction which we know to be the universal condition of all mankind. Why do you think things are so bad? When you look upon the world, you think, how could it be so bad? Mankind, at the depth of his soul, is parched for righteousness, desperate for God. And for 6,000 years, man has attempted to no avail to satisfy that thirst with everything and anything other than God. Power, sex, money, prestige, entertainment, you name it, it has failed. And it will fail because man was made for God. And so only God can satisfy the thirst of man. And only those who receive this gift of eternal life freely can be satisfied. Are you with me on that? You were made by God, for God. He's the only one that can satisfy the thirst and only those who receive God, who receive eternal life freely by grace through faith can actually have it. You can have it no other way. Look at the latter part of verse six again. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now you say, well, why did he add that last part in here? Without payment. Because it is the springs of water of life, eternal life that comes to Christ, it's a gift from God. It's a gift that God gives freely. Hence the term grace. <laughs> you don't earn it. He gives it through faith. And he gives it to all those who, who realize that they have no righteousness of their own. And then they see Christ. Christ. And they see him upon the cross and they realize that is a righteous man. And that through his sacrifice, he will give freely his righteousness to all who come to him. It is a gift that must be received as such. It is you realizing in the depth of your soul, you really don't have anything to offer God. 
You have nothing and must receive it in total from Christ. The righteousness that grants you access into eternal life. We must be, my beloved, we must become by his grace those humble recipients. Right? It's, it's hard to receive a gift, especially in our cultural moment. Pride prevents us receiving a gift. Oftentimes we'll receive a gift, and what do we do? We give the gift giver a gift himself. It says, now we're paid back. That's not a gift. You nullified it. You missed it. You remember the dialogue Jesus had with the disciples in Matthew chapter 18? Jesus is preparing to take the disciples into Jerusalem. He's preparing for that, that passion week, the week of his arrest and crucifixion and resurrection. The disciples ask probably one of the worst questions they've asked. Now, this is three, three and a half years, and they say, Lord, who's the greatest in heaven? Who's going to be the greatest in heaven? Let me read it to you. Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they want to know, where are we going to stack up? They're not going to like his answer. You know, they didn't like most of his answers. You know that. Jesus calling to him a child he put the child in the midst of them and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never, listen, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's an absolute. Unless you humble yourself and become like a child and receive the gift of eternal life, you don't get eternal life. And then Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest of God's people are the most humble of people. Entrance requires receiving this humbly, not earning it, not trying to be worthy of it, not trying to pay off your debt through good deeds. Now we get this. In a healthy home, I would argue in a healthy home, this type of love expressed and received is happening all the time. Loving parents, they protect and they provide for their children every hour of every day, sometimes to extremes, right? I mean, they feed them, they clothe them, they change those horrible diapers, they give them a place to sleep, they train them up, they love them, they play with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week until they're actually able to change their own diapers. Loving parents bend over backwards to bless their children with the most loving home they can and they don't do it because their children have earned it, right? I mean, you know this. They do it because they simply and profoundly love them. Parents love their children. I mean, what can a six-month-old do to earn their food or their crib or clean diapers? What about the two-year-old or the five-year-old? They can't pay you. There's no payment for it. They must, as humble children, live in complete and total dependence upon the parent to supply all their needs. And in the parents providing that, listen, because here's the point of it. When the parent expresses that type of love for a child on a daily basis, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for years, the child sees that love and responds in love. They receive the love and the care and the protection as the gift that it is. And it draws the child to the parent. It, it causes the child to love the parent and to obey the parent and to honor the parent, not because of the gift that is given, but because of the heart of the parent that's revealed in the giving. You see the difference? Children will love their parents when their parents love their children well, not because of the gifts, but because it reveals the heart of the parent. And that heart of the parent is so beautiful, the child will want to love them. My beloved, it's the, it's the same with God. We are to receive the gift of eternal life. We're to receive the living water if we hope to have it in him. It cannot be an exchange of commodities. We must stop trying to earn it. We must stop trying to be good enough. We must stop trying to put God in our debt so when we get to heaven, we can say, see, Lord, I did these things. You must let me in. That's a hideous approach. That's not the gospel. You say, Lord, I'm gonna do these good things. I'm gonna stop doing these bad things so that when I see you, you're indebted to me. You have to let me in. What a horrible entrance. 
It's not an entrance that will work, and it's not an entrance that you want. That turns grace and love into merit and work, and it ruins the relationship of father, son, father, daughter. It ruins it. I love, I do, I love expressing my love for my children and my grandchildren. I love it. I love to serve them. I love to give them things. But you want to know what ruins it for me? Listen up, boys. This ruins it for me. When I express my love for my children or my grandchildren, and they try to pay me back. They want to reimburse me. They want to give me something in order to be equal. Well, when my children do that, now I become the employer and they're the employee. When they try to pay back, then the love expression and the love reception becomes a commodity. It becomes an economic transaction. And that wrecks everything. What I want is I want to express my love to them and I want them to receive it joyfully and in that reception, see my heart for them and love me in return because of my love for them. The gift goes away and the love is what remains. My beloved, this is why we must receive eternal life by grace through faith because when we do, when we do, then God, his love for sinners, will be magnified in this world. When we receive the gift of eternal life from God freely, then we are able to love God in response to that and see God's true love for the lost and and believe John 3.16, this God who what? So loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You gotta believe it to have it you got to receive it by grace so the love expression between you and the Father is magnified to have it. But there's one more, and this is one of the hardest. So if you are, if you're even remotely tired, then slap yourself in the face. Do whatever you got to do. Yeah, now you, you want to hear this last part of it. You already heard it read once, and it probably, if you were listening closely, maybe took your breath away a little bit. Revelation 21, verse 8 is not a, a verse we hear and go, yeah, no problem. You gotta believe it, you gotta receive it, and you gotta keep it, and I mean keep it, you gotta hold on to it. You gotta hold on to the promise of eternal life. Look at verse seven. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So God is now, he's still speaking from the throne, and he said the one who conquers will receive this heritage. What's the heritage? That's the inheritance of eternal life. It's all that we've been talking about. It's the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new people of God dwelling together. It's all the great things. It's this place where there is no no more weeping, no more tears, no more mourning. You You get to inherit that. And that's phenomenal. And I would say worthy of transforming the way we live. But I I gotta I gotta be really transparent. It's the latter part of that verse 7 that really strikes me. The heritage is great. I want all that. But God says, I will be your God and you'll be my son. I will be your God. You'll be my daughter. That's the intimacy that God is talking about. That's the relational love that comes from the gift giver and the gift receiver that God's trying to communicate for us to see here. Israel was long identified in the Old Testament as God's son, the the nation of Israel, God's people as God's son. As early as Exodus chapter four, verse 22, listen, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So God, even under the old covenant, identified himself as the father and Israel, his people, as his children, sons and daughters. Under the new covenant, we know. We know that if you have come to a saving grace in Christ, if you've truly turned away from your sins and put your faith in Christ and you are walking in his righteousness, then you are a son and a daughter now that God truly is your father. In the most intimate sense, you're children of Abraham and you enjoy that blessing and you'll enjoy, he's saying here, the blessing of eternal life. Not as a guest, not as a spectator. You're not gonna be on the sidelines thinking, wow, I wish I could really get into that. The new heaven, the new earth, the new city, the new people, you're in it. You're enjoying it. Just as Christ enjoys it now from the throne. The over-the-top blessing of eternal life as sons and daughters 
God says, comes to all who, what? Who conquer. So what, is, what are we talking about conquering? And we've seen this now multiple times in our study in Revelation. Those who conquer, those who persevere, those who make it to the end. We know fundamentally that we conquer because Christ conquered for us on the cross. So we don't talk about conquering anything apart from Jesus and his conquering Satan, sin, and death on the cross for us and then imputing us that victory. We know that, right? So we don't talk about conquering apart from Christ conquering. But we do talk about conquering in the context of Christ enabling us to conquer now. Right? Through the cross, through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able right now to be conquerors too. To be hyper conquerors. To those who are, live victorious lives. You say, what is, a, what is a victorious life in Christ? Certainly, it must mean minimally that you're not going to turn away from the faith. You're going to conquer if you make it all the way to the end. Jesus said that, right? John 24, those who persevere to the end shall be saved. So you've got to make it. And that would be the ultimate conquering on that last day you coming before God in Christ. But I think in the context of our passage, it's dealing much more specifically. I do believe it's talking about conquering sin. And I believe that because of what we have here in verse 8, which is those who do not conquer, those who fail to conquer the power of the flesh, and therefore, instead of life, they get death. Look at verse 8. So those who conquer, they get the inheritance. They become sons and daughters of the living God. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We've seen this multiple times. This is where Satan is. This is where the beast is, the false prophet, all sin, all evil, all those who were in rebellion against God. This is where they are, in the lake of fire, experiencing the second death. All those who do not conquer end up here, not in the new heaven and the new earth. God identifies eight ways of life. And it's really important that you get this. These are sins, yes, in particular, but he's not talking about you stumbling in the sin. He's talking about a way of life. He's talking about practicing sin. Not repenting, not turning, not confessing, not walking in righteousness. He's talking about this is the way of life. And like all other vice lists, and it's a vice list, right, a sin list that we see in the New Testament, it's by no means comprehensive. So feel free to add to the list the sins in your life that you continue to practice. You say, well, I didn't see it on here. I must be good. You can add to it materialism. You can add to it slothfulness. You can add to it the addiction today to entertainment or social media. You can just add to it the general disobedience of living as a Christian. The list is not comprehensive, but it is clear, and it was clear to those in Asia Minor and certainly was addressed to their cultural moment, that all eight individually lead to the lake of fire, without exception. He begins, I think, with cowardly, because that's the opposite of being a conqueror, is it not? If you're a coward, you're not conquering anything, you're being subject to fear. This would be conforming to all the pressures of the beast, of the, of the cultural moment. Instead of living a countercultural life for Christ, if you are a coward, you give in to the ways of this world and to its ways. The unfaithful characterize not just unfaithfulness as you stop believing, but unfaithfulness as you don't really rely upon God as you go through your daily life. You rely upon your own resources, your own talents, your own strengths. We, in, in, in the United States, we call that what? The self-made man, the self-made woman. We put those people up on a pedestal. That would be a, a faithless life. The detestable probably refers to, we're going to see this in Revelation 22, it probably refers to that phrase dogs um, and likely is pertaining to sodomy and homosexuality. The murderer, you know, that's simple. That's both literal and spiritual. If you commit murder, if you take someone's life, well, the lake of fire belongs to you, but you can also take someone's life by hating someone in your heart. 
We know this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if you've heard, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, Raka, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. And you say, uh-oh. Well, I've hated a lot of people. I hate a lot of people now, maybe you're saying. The sexually immoral would include any and all practices that are inappropriate for God's people. Lust, adultery, fornication, pornography. Certainly the entire LGBTQ plus agenda. Any intimacy outside of marriage. All sexual behavior runs contrary to the purity of God's people. And God says, you practice that and your end is a lake of fire. This is serious. It's a serious list. Sorcery, which is the practice of witchcraft, was common in John's day. It's becoming more prevalent today, the attraction. But I think it's even broader than that. It would be any attempt you make to manipulate your circumstances through illicit means rather than simply trusting in in God's providence in your life. Idolatry, which of course encompasses them all, is the worship of a false god. And idolatry has always excluded mankind from God's eternal life. Always. Because when you, when you chase after another God, my beloved, you are saying fundamentally, I'm not satisfied in the real God. Right? You're saying, I'm thirsting still, and I'm not finding my thirst quenched by God, therefore I'm going to go after another God. And therefore God says, go. And he lets you go. But he expe- has, you should have no expectation of eternal life. And then he ends... He ends with one I think that is really hard for us. He says, all liars will find their home in the lake of fire and sulfur. And if you've been okay in number one through seven, you get to eight and everybody's lied. Everybody lies. And so you realize that if this is true, if this list is true, and all those who practice it end up in the lake of fire, then you must know you have no righteousness of your own to offer before God. You have none. Now let me be really careful here lest I send the entire church into an unbiblical tailspin. To engage in these sins does not automatically preclude you from eternal life. If that were true, none of us would be saved. Not one of us would have a sliver of hope. These lists are given that we might be rightly warned And we might rightly hear that to practice these sins, to continue in them and profess Christ leads to the lake of fire. You see, according to the gospel, no payment is required for these springs of living water. No payment is required of you to have eternal life. But that does not mean no payment was required. We know that. We know that Jesus made our payment. We know that he ascended the cross and he paid our debt in full. We know he even said that, right? It is finished, paid in full. We know that. He overcame the power of sin and death. He conquered it for us so that we might become conquerors too. Not just of death, but of sin now. I mean, my beloved, you've been born again if you know Christ. That means you have a new heart with new desires if you know Christ. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you if you know Christ. And being born again with new desires in the Holy Spirit means no true Christian will continue to practice sin. I know that is a hard statement in the Western church. No true Christian will continue to practice willfully, daily sin. You say, well, how, how can you make such a statement? I don't have to. The Bible does. First John chapter 3, listen with all your might. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of who? The devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then he says this, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. My beloved, 
those three verses in 1 John chapter 3, I believe could probably vacate 75% of the churches gathering this morning. Said, this is ridiculous. The one who conquers is the one who does not make a practice of sinning. Now I want you, we're going to close, but I want you to ask yourself right now, what sins are you practicing? You see, what do I mean by that? Sins you keep doing over and over and over and over. You know they're sinful. You know God hates them. You know you have the power in Christ to turn, but you do not. My beloved, that is a, that's a very dangerous place to be in light of Revelation 21, verse 8. To practice sin. Instead of what? Instead of acknowledging the sin. Instead of confessing that sin. And instead of asking God to forgive you completely of the sin. Instead of turning and walking in righteousness, saying, no more will I walk in that way. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to walk in righteousness. And when I stumble on that sin again, I'll seek forgiveness. I'll be forgiven. And I will pursue righteousness even more. That's what the Christian does. It means, my beloved, that you'll begin to hate the sin in your life. I mean, hate it. And when you stumble in it, you will hate it and you will pursue righteousness. You will seek to put it to death. So I guess a closing question will be this. Are you in that battle? This is not perfectionism. This is not sinlessness. You will not be sinless on this side of heaven. The question is not, are you perfect? Are you sinless? The question is, are you battling your sin? Are you in the Roman 7 fight? The things that you do not want to do, you keep on doing that which you want to do. You do not do, oh, what a wretched man am I. Are you pleading to Christ? Are you running to Christ? Are you in the fight? By the word of God, by the power of the Spirit, and by the church, with your brothers and sisters fighting together to live this holy life that God has called you to live. Are you in it? You say, yeah, the church. What role is the church? I pray, I read my Bible, I do my daily devotionals. The church is one of the primary means that God gives us to battle against sin. The church, God's people, gathered together regularly, praying together, confessing together, holding each other accountable that our hearts might not, what? Hebrews chapter three, be deceived and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is the church part of your life in making you holy? Or are you going to be a liar and say you do not need the church because God says you do? Or are you going to practice unfaithfulness relying upon your own strength and your own power to conquer your own sin? Either way, you throw yourself into verse 8 and the lake of fire is all you have. God is faithful and God is sovereign. His story of redemption will end exactly as he has so decreed. The only question is how will it end for you? Will you find yourself, and oh, I pray, my beloved, I, I pray that I make it there. I pray you do too, that we find ourselves in that most majestic place together. Every single one of us together in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the new heavens and the new earth, communing with Him. I pray that is the case. I pray it is not the lake of fire. I pray that you have fixed your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Christ comes again in glory. We do not want to join the masses seeking those fleshly desires now that lead to the second death all the while claiming Christ as our Savior. There are many upon that broad path, my beloved, that claim to be Christian who will only experience fire and sulfur. The end of God's story is fixed, but the good news as of this moment, yours is not. If you do not know Christ, if you do not know, have this hope of eternal life, if you find yourself practicing sin, then right now, my beloved, you can repent and turn and be saved. This moment, his story is fixed. Yours is not. It's still being made. And what a glorious piece of good news for those who do not know Christ. I want to encourage you to be wise 
and with the help of your brothers and sisters, I want you to strive each day to put Jesus Christ and his kingdom before you. Maybe you need to start your day with a big poster in your room saying, Jesus Christ is my king. The kingdom is coming. Live today in light of that truth. Do whatever you need to do to have a primary meditation for you on a daily basis, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. If you do that, my beloved, if you cultivate that hope that's driven by God's love for you in Christ, you will change. This church will change. You'll mortify sin. You'll serve one another and you'll bring the gospel to the lost. And I know, I know you, and I know that's what you want. So let's do that. Let's strive together to put Christ in his kingdom first. Amen? Let's pray. Father, give us the wisdom and give us the strength as your children here at Christ Community Church to put Jesus and the kingdom first. To really seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And let all those other things come as you so decree. Father, give us the wisdom to mortify these sins that we continue to practice. Show us the lake of fire and sulfur. Terrify us if need be that we turn from such a horrific end, magnify the new heaven and the new earth and give us that deep longing for it, a good longing, Father, to be with you and your people in that place where love abounds. I ask this for myself, for my brothers and sisters. I pray you would do that for your true church throughout the world, Father, that we might be hyper-conquerors in this life and in the next. We ask this, Father, for our well-being always. But we ask it above all else for your glory. You are worthy of it. Glorify yourself in these ways, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.